This show is brought to you by earpeeler.com. What's up, everybody? This is John Bush from Armored Saint, and you are cranking it up. Hey there, this is Joey Vera from Armored Saints, and you are listening to Mars Attack. This is Doyle Wolfgang von Frankenstein of Doyle, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, what do you say? Be careful, because Mars Attacks. This is Bobby Blitz from Overkill. You stay tuned. Hey, this is Chuck Billy from Testament right here on Mars Attacks. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, this is Dave Windorf from Monster Magnet, and you are listening to Mars Attacks. Hey, what's happening? This is Tommy Victor from Prong and Danzig. Hey, all, here's Andrea Peter from Sepultura and De La Tierra, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Enjoy. Yo, what's up? This is Frank Fellow from Anthrax, and you are listening to Mars Attack. Turn it up! Hey, this is Richard Patrick from Filter, and you're listening to Mars Attack. Hello, everybody. This is Max Cavalera, Soulfly. You're listening to Mars Attack. Stay metal. This is Brant Bjork. And you're listening to Mars Attacks. So keep listening. Hey, what's up? This is Kyle from The Sword, and you're listening to Mars Attacks. Welcome, one and all, to episode 142 of the Mars Attacks podcast. I'm your host, Victor. And I need to basically start things off with admitting to the fact that um, that I screwed something up with the last episode, episode 141, with Kyle from The Sword, uh, Rock from Radioactive Metal, and I talk quite frequently. We talk about music, we talk about wrestling quite often, and one of the things that he mentioned was that I had basically told a story on Metallica's escape and how my what I told wasn't correct basically and listen I'm I'm a music nerd I I absolutely love you know seeing documentaries and reading different things about you know historical facts about music and and if I get something wrong I have no problem with somebody saying hey dude you know this is wrong it was actually this And this is a story, my version of it, uh, was something that I've heard for years, which was that Metallica was asked by their label, what I incorrectly said during the last episode was by Elektra, to record another track that was more radio-friendly so that they could get songs off of uh, Ride the Lightning placed on radio. And... That's completely wrong. Um, not well. The the label part of it is wrong. Rock's version was that their album was short, so they needed another track, and they recorded or they wrote the song and recorded it right in the studio, and that's why the the members poo poo the song. So I said, hey, let's ask our good friend Bob Nalbandian from Inside LA Metal. Or, yeah, the Inside Metal series, I should say. He knows all those guys from way back then. He knows Mustaine, he knows Lars, he knows James. He's got pictures with all these guys on Facebook and whatnot. Talk about a name dropper, that Bob guy. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, Anyway, so I asked Bob, and Bob basically said, and, and I should say that 
when Rock started telling me that, you know, I was wrong with the label, I figured, all right, well, it was Johnny Z of Megaforce and not, and not Electric. So I asked him, I said, look, this is how I've known the story. This is what Rock is saying. Who has it right? <laughs> and Bob basically says, well, from what I've heard, um, Johnny Z did want them to do something that was slightly more radio friendly so that he could get, you know, ride the lightning or songs off of it on the air. And at the same time, the album was about a song short. And so they had to write something in the studio. So I guess you combine both stories and it's, you know, closer to the truth. So essentially the two of us had part of the story. And if you combine it, you get what's there. Uh, so what I was wrong with was the fact that that it was that it was electric. It was not electric because, as Rock pointed out to me, the Electra purchased their contract six months after it was released on Megaforce. So there you go. And the other thing that I got incorrect was the fact that they've only played Escape once or twice live. It turns out that they've played it or they played it on that tour. 80 some odd times if I got the number correct it's 86 and I mean if you factor in that they were probably doing about 200 dates a year back then if not more that's a considerably low number because I mean just think about it the, the you know fade to black and and the song ride the lightning were probably played 200 times during that tour if not more and that's just one year I mean so so there you go. So I got that wrong, and I got the, the label thing wrong. So Rock, I apologize. This is me rectifying this issue. And by all means, anyone else that catches me saying something that isn't correct, drop me a line. I have no problem with that. You can do that via Facebook, Twitter, or you can just drop us an email at input at marsattacksradio.com. As far as the Facebook and the Twitter and all that great stuff, you can go to marsattacksradio.com and there are links to all of our social media sites right at the top and bottom of the page. So there you have that. And I will also say this, you know, with other shows, Chris from, Chris Sinzak from the Decibel Geek Podcast will attest to this. I am very anal with them when it comes to them screwing up facts uh, it's just the, as I say to him, I'm the, the Larry David of podcasting in the fact that I hear something and, you know, it's almost like a a stupid reaction on my behalf where I just have to correct them and let them know what they're doing wrong. And I don't know how many times I've written them and I've deleted it and been like, you know, let it go. Why... Why fuck with them? Not fuck with them. I'm just trying to help. But I think what I'm doing is being more annoying than anything else. So, so I, you know, I try to cut back on that. I find that happening to me on Facebook as well because Facebook or other social media stuff, I'll see where people have egregiously written something wrong. And I'll go to respond to them. And all of a sudden, I'll delete it and say, who the fuck cares? <laughs> you know? So... I'm just trying to mind my own business a little more on social media. I try to do what I can to help promote the different sites and different things that I do have going on. I will say that I read something that Chris Akins had posted, 
that uh, our friend Bob Nalbandian, he will be a common theme here, and I'll get into talking about him a little more in a second, and Carl Alvarez, who's a producer on the Inside Metal series, who is today's guest. But Chris posted that they've taken sort of Bob's advice and signed up for something called Advertise Cast, so that you know you can get people, people whoever want to promote their shows or their products on your podcasts. Uh, they have a platform to do so. This is something that I've been kicking around for a while uh, about either doing some something with crowdfunding or something with um, with Patreon or whatnot. Uh, but this made most sense at the moment. I sort of looked over what those guys had done, and, and I thought, you know what, this this could work for us as well. Uh, there's no harm in it. I mean, I'm not putting a gun to anybody's head and saying, you must give me your money, damn it. No, this is just a suggestion. If you want to pay, and we're you know going everywhere from five bucks up to about uh, up to one twenty, you know, um, if if you have the cash and you want to uh, spend it, I'm more than happy to you know be the recipient. And, you know, you want a 10-second shout-out? We can do that for you. There's an app for that. Uh, you want a 30-second sponsored ad? We can do that as well. You want a 60-second ad? We can do that also. You want a sponsored review of something that you have to offer? Uh, I can do that for you as well. We have guest interviews, song plays, podcast promos, birthday wish. Uh, we also have sponsored segments. For example, this opening monologue. You want to sponsor this? You want me to mention your brand at the beginning and end of my gabbing segment here. I will be more than happy to do that and mention up to three of your social media links as well. So there you go. Not putting a gun to anyone's head, but if you're interested, you can go to advertisecast.com forward slash Mars Attacks podcast, and there will be a link on our site for that, or actually there is already. If you go to advertise from the menu bar, you can go directly to AdvertiseCast, so there's that. Uh, We've also got, you know, the Google Ads running and a few other affiliate site things. And we have a, a basic merch store set up. I've got one t-shirt that I've set up through Zazzle. And I'm in the process of having some others set up. Uh, one of the worst things is depending on somebody that you know to do things. And, you know, this has happened to me over the years, whether it's you know, with work, whether it's with the podcast, whether it's with different things, people that, you know, hey, you know, can, you know, can you help me out with this where, you know, I've already helped them with something and I'll be like, all right, well, you know, can you return the favor? Sure, no problem. Let me know what you need. So I've been waiting like, I don't know how many months for a t-shirt design. So I finally said, fuck it. I'm going to design it myself. I'm going to find somebody to put this together for me the way that I want it. And we'll see. So hopefully before year's end, we'll be doing that. We'll offer, you know, a t-shirt. We've got a basic one there. 
And I know that people have said to me with the stuff, with the merch for ear peeler, they've been like, dude, this is like really expensive. But I'm going to be very honest with you. The t-shirt that is there right now for each sale, I'm getting 60 cents off of that sale. Why, you ask? I know that there are people that will say, oh, well, you know, you can, you know, make a killing or, or you can, you know, make this much or that much. Look. I'm in Europe. If I ship anything from here, it's going to be 20 to 30 to $50 more than what it is to, you know, buy it directly in the States. If I, you know, set something up so that people will, you know, send the shirts out for me, then what happens? Then I have to find, you know, I have to pester somebody in my family or a friend to do it, and then it's just a hassle. So what Zazzle has is perfect. I can set up through them, someone places an order, and it doesn't matter where you are in the world, it's still roughly around the same amount everywhere because they have local centers where they can send the shirts out to you or any of the merch. So, so there you go. So there is one piece of Mars Attacks podcast merch right now it is a basic white t-shirt that just says mars attacks radio and podcast (laughs) if you think that's cool check it out it is and i should have had this prepared beforehand uh it, it is and as i say basic it is as basic as basic can be So let's see. You can go to the merch store right from the banner up top. And it is $20.95 to purchase it. If you purchase it right now, I am recording this episode on the 10th of December 2016. If you purchase it before the 14th and use the the, um, coupon code or the discount code, there you go. Z Custom Gifts, plural. You will receive 30% off of that. So if you want to pull the trigger, if you want to get a t-shirt for someone, it is actually a white ringer t-shirt. What that means is the collars and the the sleeves are black. I've always liked that sort of thing. So there you go. If if you want to help the podcast out, you can do so. I... (laughs) only getting a few cents for each shirt but hopefully you know we'll be able to drive a decent amount of people to and we'll make some some sort of change off of it (laughs) literally um what else so today's guest is carl alvarez of the inside metal series uh he's the producer he spent some time with me to do this episode and another episode that was featured for the Halloween episode of the Galaxy of Geeks podcast. Uh, You can check that out as well, galaxyofgeeks.net, or you can look us up on iTunes. Uh, You can look us up on Stitcher. And um, wait, are we on Stitcher? Yeah, we're on... um, Yes, we are on Stitcher. What the hell? I'm mixing... uh, Sorry, I was mixing it up with Spreaker. So you can check us out on iTunes, Stitcher... The Google Play Store as well. 
or you can subscribe directly to our RSS feed. I know there are people out there that don't like using any of those programs. We have the RSS feeds at the top and bottom of both Mars Attacks Radio and GalaxyofGeeks.net. So uh, for those of you unaware of that podcast, it is a sci-fi you know, sci-fi TV, sci-fi movies, uh, Star Wars, Walking Dead, Game of Thrones, Marvel, DC, so on and so forth. If you're into any of that stuff, check us out. Uh, um, and also, yeah, there's social media for all that as well. So either go go to galaxyofgeeks.net to find out more about that. And we have an episode that should be released within the next few days in preparation of the release of Rogue One, which I will be seeing a few hours before it is released in the States. So the pre-release, the pre-release, which um, starts what? Technically like 10 hours before it's released in the US. So people in Australia and Japan and whatnot, I'm sure will be seeing it before us, but it is what it is. Uh, what else? One also remind you guys to go to earpeeler.com. That is my uh, podcasting news interview site. And we've modified things a little bit. We're trying to get a larger audience. And, and my idea was originally to have Earpeeler be one site, another site called Entertainment Podcasting, another one which is Wrestling Podcast Central, um, Economic economicspodcasting.com and Signals from Mars is the other one that I was starting up. Uh, Due to time, due to lack of funding, due to a bunch of other things, what I've started to do is pretty much encompass a lot of the different things that were going to be split out into those various sites and incorporating them within Earpeeler for a few reasons. One, to add more content, and two, because it drives more people to the site, basically. I'm not trying to compete with iTunes. I'm not trying to compete with anyone else. I'm just trying to I'm trying to center it upon interviews, and of course, there are some shows that don't have interviews or it's celebrity you know, podcasts, especially within the wrestling genre, and to me, a lot of that stuff is entertaining as well, so... That's why I'm including that. So, earpeeler.com, uh, you'll find you know podcasts from any of the things that I mentioned. If there's any confusion at all as to what we offer, go to the category section. You can search uh, via you know whether you want to listen to an audio podcast, uh, uh, watch a video podcast, and if you want to you know, find something that's TV-centric or sci-fi-centric or, or black metal or folk metal or hip-hop or whatever, just go to the categories. Click on the drop-down box there, click on the category that interests you, and you're off and running. If you want to search by artist, you can do that as well. If you want to find out, you know, what, uh, what shows... Uh, Rob Halford has been interviewed on that are listed. Just type in Rob Halford and all of your options will come up. So there you go. Earpeeler.com. Let's get into some music here. Um, you know, I didn't really do it with the last episode. I just did one interview, one song coming in, one song coming out, and one to end. And, you know, after the, the long thing, you know, in, in retrospect, what I said last week, I mean... 
it, it, I don't want to delve into it really all that much. Honestly, you know, I my whole thing is just to help someone out. Whenever I played sports, I always wanted to be that playmaking guy because I didn't give a shit about getting the the the, the final score. You know, I I had no problem being the guy that set up set that guy up because I think that linchpin cog is just as important or more important in a lot of instances. So, so yeah, so, anyway, let's get into some music. Let's forget about that. If you want to hear more about that or you want to drop me a line about it, just listen to 141 and just let me know. Anyway, let's get into, there's a lot of cool shit that we can play here because there's so many awesome bands Um, here's someone that, um, I see people asking about all the time, a band I've, I can't say I'm a huge fan, but I do appreciate a lot of their earlier stuff. Uh, let's get into some Wasp. Let's get into the track Love Machine from Wasp.
some wasp. That's off the wasp album. I actually have it off of a greatest hits. Again, I'm not the hugest uh, wasp fan, so I'm not going to admit to being that because I'm not. Uh, but always love that track. Always L O V E that track. Ha ha. Yeah. There you go. Another LA based band. And this band ties into a bunch of different things that we've done in the past, whether that's the classic album series where we talked about it was Ozzy Osbourne's Blizzard of Oz. And I tried to get Frankie Benali on. Essentially, what happened was this he went on Talking Metal and he talked about, you know, being part of an early version of Ozzy's band because of his connection with, um, with Randy and this and that. And it, didn't work out. He talked about all that, and that episode, basically, the recorder that they were using shit the bed in uh, good old Bionic Studios, and that was never released as a podcast. So at the same time that he was trying to promote his movie, the Quiet Riot movie, Now You're Here, There's Nowhere Back, uh, I reached out to him to see if he would talk about Blizzard of Oz again to say, hey, you know, you're on my good friend's show, blah, blah, blah. And I reached out to his now wife and and nothing. So I wasn't able to make it happen. And lo and behold, a few weeks later, uh, he was on that metal show being interviewed by Mark Striegel of Talking Metal for like a whatever the, the YouTube only content. And he tells the story over again. So cool that Mark was able to get that story after after all, but um, Quiet Riot for me is the first band to get me to purchase something that was not Kiss. <laughs> so up until then, you know, uh, 83, I believe, is when the album came out. Up until then, it was Kiss, Kiss, and more Kiss. And while I should say that my brother had, you know, ACDC's Back in Black, Pink Floyd's The Wall, Cheap Trick's Budokan... Uh, we had Ted Nugent's, uh, um, I was going to say Scream Dream. That's not the name of the album. Wango Tango is the name of the album? Uh, I'm, I'm, I think I'm dropping the ball there. But anyway, but you get the picture. We had some, We had, my brother had other stuff. I was still Kiss. He gave me all of his Kiss records. He was done with Kiss by then. And Quiet Riot's... Uh, Metal Health came out and it was the first thing and a lot of it had to do with MTV and the imagery and you know seeing the mask and this and that and it was like wow you know it doesn't only have to be Kiss you know this is something else that really is eye catching and and this and that and seeing the stripes and and whatnot and... but um yeah I was gonna say something else but I'm better off not saying it anyway. So this is off of Condition Critical, an album that a lot of people shit on. You either love it or hate it. There's some tracks that have weathered the time better than others off of this. And this has always been a favorite of mine by the band. This is the first track off of the album, which is Sign of the Times by Quiet Right. Yeah. 
right, there you go. A little quiet ride coming off of condition critical. That is sign of the times. Not to be confused with the Prince track of the same name. Actually, his is sign O the times. We're going to play one more track before jumping into the episode with Carl. Carl! Sorry, I got to do the Walking Dead thing there. Um... This is Armored Saint, man. When when I get <laughs> when I get bummed out and see that people are being interviewed on other shows after constantly, you know, asking and asking and asking and asking, uh, recently saw that um, the guys from Armored Saint were interviewed for another show, and it really bummed me out because I've been trying for years. And yes, I've had both Joey and John on a few times. Uh, but I really wanted to do something special with them. Their their label is sort of poo-pooed it for a while. Um, tried reaching out directly, could not, you know, haven't heard back, and it's been quite a while. So I'm I'm assuming that taint gonna happen, basically. So we'll see. Was hoping to start up another themed show for next year, and I'm knocking on a lot of doors and not getting a whole lot of answers. So so we'll see. Uh, may go in a different direction with this stuff, but uh, there, there's a lot of cool stuff that I have planned for 2017. Uh, we'll see if you guys enjoy it or not, and whether whether any of these shows take take off or not. We'll see if we continue to do them or not. Anyway, so back to Armored Saint. This is off of Symbol of Salvation. This is dropping like flies, and then we'll get into the interview with Carl Alvarez.
what was the catalyst for you to start following the LA music scene? Uh, well, I think though, kind of a lot of different things. Probably primarily the whole Van Halen thing, which which really even in my early stages of being aware of Van Halen, not even knowing that they were a Southern California band, but maybe finding out a little bit later. Um, but Eddie Van Halen just took that guitar thing, and I I had always been I played guitar, but at that stage I still wanted a guitar. And then when Eddie Van Halen came out and did what he did, you bought a guitar. <laughs> it was just mandatory. You had to do that. <laughs> I think before I would just look through the Sears catalogs and I knew Britchie Blackmore and I knew he played a Fender Strat and I'm like, okay, that's what I want because there wasn't any radical designs that were coming out at that time either. But you know, when Eddie Van Halen came out, it was like he took the guitar and turned it upside down, you know, whether it was the the pinstripes on that first record, that Strat, which was completely modified to this outrageous sounding thing going from a Fender guitar style, which actually if you've ever played a Fender with a single coil pickup, it sounds really tinny. Maybe maybe Keith Richards kind of took it a little bit further in terms of the sound sonic-wise, but Eddie Van Halen just, again, turned it upside down. So discovering Eddie Van Halen, Van Halen, being aware that, wow, they're from Los Angeles, they're in our backyard, I guess, and that just kind of spun things off for me to have that interest um you know a lot of those 70s bands too were really you know the big thing you know, the aerosmiths the ufos maybe the early judas priest that was pretty exciting because they were kind of they were going more heavier as rather than commercial or lighter but there was a point to where whether the drugs burned them out or they started to go more of a pop direction then you had the, the whole Black Sabbath, when Dio sang on Heaven and Hell, that started to change things too. And then you started to hear about Motorhead and, you know, Iron Maiden and a lot of the new wave of British heavy metal bands that were kind of making a name for themselves out there. And it was this sound. That's what was like my second wave. You know, Eddie, Eddie Van Halen was still important and still like really close to the heart, but this new thing that was coming um that was actually coming over to california in a sense because the whole van halen thing had really played itself out by that time and new wave and punk were really kind of the the it style in los angeles and rock was the redheaded stepchild there was pop music and pop people that were trying to get signed to labels and do the commercial thing but uh, they tended to just kind of be part of the the mix they there was no real standout pop band so you had to really be something and do something. So whether it's your new wave band, the Go-Go's, or you were the punk band X, Black Flag, you know, you were making some inroads with press and the hip people. And the hard rock thing needed something else. It couldn't continue just to kind of replicate another Van Halen band. Although you did see that a lot, drawing from that influence. You see these guitarists trying to do the, the whole Eddie thing and the tapping. That was continual. You know, I don't think that ever went away. But the whole uh, mold of it, we'd see a lot of those bands, but they wouldn't really get off the ground. So I think this new wave of British heavy metal that just kind of infused into whether the bands were kind of drawing from Def Leppard and because Def Leppard was doing new wave of British heavy metal, but they were doing the American version or what they thought America wanted 
uh, but they were still kind of in their roots, you know, going to high and dry and that. The, the bands at that time, 1981, 82, they were drawing from that too, that new blood that was coming into the LA scene. So starting to see those bands starting to play like these clubs and wondering like, wow, this could be a cool thing. And then Brian Slagle with his... Um, uh, his fanzine, I I picked up on that in 1981, and he's talking about these new wave of British heavy metal bands, and he talks a little bit about you know Sirithungal and Pandemonium and these bands that are out here in California. I'm like, oh okay, well if they have this high profile in this magazine talking about the new wave of British heavy metal, and we got these bands that are kind of making a little noise out in California, wow, there must be some correlation. They must sound just as heavy, so. So all of that got me curious. It's kind of a long story I, I give you, but that's kind of <laughs> my my initiation to really being compelled about this early stage of uh, Los Angeles. And and that's interesting that you bring up that bands um, tried to copy the whole Van Halen model, but in the first series of DVDs that you released for uh, pioneers of of LA hard rock and metal. There was more than one person that said, well, actually, they sort of borrowed from us. So it was interesting to see that aspect of things as well. Yeah, because uh, they did borrow. <laughs> but the funny thing is, you know, the world wasn't really aware of what that was all about. So I guess there could be some some things that could be construed that way. I, I, I believe that the smile vocalist who specifically talked about that i believe that to be true you know because it just made sense it seemed to be right and people were aware of that too you know so um yeah there was probably a little bit of borrowing i guess if you will okay and another thing that you mentioned was def leppard i you know being as young as i am in comparison to you know, other people that talk about the subject matter. I mean, I'm saying young, I'll be 43 in a few days, but, uh, <laughs> um, I never realized the effect that Def Leppard had on the scene. You just brought them up, but in the LA scene explodes more than one band actually discusses their direct effect on the LA scene and on, as you mentioned, American music as well. So that was really something that opened my eyes up. I, you know, those early albums were so important. And I guess for someone like myself, who, I mean, I really didn't know the band until Pyromania, just due to my age, but hysteria is what so many people point to, but it's obvious that as you said, high and dry, uh, on through the night, were huge uh, when it came to influencing what came out from not only L.A., but the whole American scene in the early 80s. Yeah, you know, there was a lot of imports. But if you were living in, you know, a rural town or a small town or a medium-sized town, you know, the record stores where you got your music, remember those? Um you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you had the major label system, and most of the imports or independent records wouldn't necessarily make those stores just because of the size and the nature. There wasn't what was believed to be an audience that would like obscure stuff. So, you know, Def Leppard was on Polygram, Mercury, or Polygram. So they would magically find their way in the bins, and, you know, that's kind of how 
I started, you know, looking m- most of that stuff of that era was major label related, you know, Y&T Earthshaker, you know, that's where we we were lucky to find it at the 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 record chain store that was in town, you know, or the Def Leppard that was able to find it in the next city over at the chain record chain store. So, you know, these things would make their way to us and but we were we were already on the ACDC wave and we were already on uh, Judas Priest and owning all their catalogs. So, all of us, we were well, at least especially me, I w- I was always looking for the new stuff, the new stuff, the new stuff and Iron Maiden being on EMI uh when Killers came out, we were able to buy it at our store. So, there were there was a kind of a changing of the guard in terms of um what we were looking for, but there wasn't a lot of it to be had. So, when we picked up Def Leppard's High and Dry, it was it was the record you listened to all year, basically. <laughs> You're talking about all these different things that sort of made you get involved or made you want to um, discover all these bands and look for new things and different things. Is there one specific moment, being at a show or seeing maybe an artist on TV, that really sticks out in your mind that sort of defines why you really wanted to, you know, become a music junkie. Oh, wow. Well, I have to go back to way, way, way early. I, I was born in the Bay Area, and it, my parents split up eh, probably when I was six or seven. I had a lot of older brothers, though, and we constantly had the radio on. So the whole Bay Area thing, San Francisco, that was a real epicenter for change and um, what was going on in the late 60s. I'm 51, so I'm kind of revealing something here. So, But at an early age, I was exposed to so much. And my brother had blacklight posters, and he would pay, you know, play one side of Abbey Road or bring home the new Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced? And, you know, you just trip out on these album covers and, and just kind of being exposed to this altered consciousness that seemed to be happening, and it was, seemed to be very magical. So that that's probably the first thing that drew me in. And the next thing that drew me in was Richie Blackmore hearing that guitar. It was just amazing what he was doing at that time. And maybe a little later, hearing Tony Iommi and the drone-heavy guitar, and obviously Jimmy Page. So I go straight to guitarist, I guess. I just <laughs> love the sound and the innovation and the whole martial amplification was just really starting to come into its own you know and the sounds and distortion and uh, technicalities and um, so that's that's what really drew me in as far as Los Angeles it was really I knew something was going on there and I go to back to Brian Slago and his magazine um, his fanzine which was the first of its kind really I mean he was replicating what Krang was doing um, you know within that year so it was really exciting to hear that, okay, all the bands I'm buying records at the stores, maybe there's some other bands that are just as good out in the L.A. scene. Obviously, there must be something, because they're playing these clubs, the Whiskey, the Starwood, Gazaris. That really got me excited, but I had no way to get transportation out there. So I think it was like two years, maybe when I was 17. So I was kind of getting into it and understanding it at 15, age 15. And in the meantime, a lot of the new wave of British heavy metal bands were starting to come over. Iron Maiden came over on the Killers tour to Southern California. Uh, Motorhead opened for Ozzy when Randy on the Randy Rhodes on the um, Blizzard of Oz tour, so I got to see that. 
Um, so it, it started to infiltrate. So we, we started to get really into it, but there was always this quest for, there's got to be something more. There's, there's, there's a lot more out there. So we were, we were constantly looking for whatever the thing was. And I think the first time for me was probably going to the Troubadour in Los Angeles and seeing something that I had never seen before. And that's probably the moment where I felt, Okay, everything I knew that was local, this is the place because this is all the sounds are happening. The bands, the bands are loud, guys are into it, girls are here, and it was totally untapped. It was like our little thing, you know, before it really exploded after the US Festival, basically. So, and then the world found out about it. But for that moment in time, nobody knew about it. It was just a select few of us, and it was great. It was really great seeing Arm <laughs> Saint, seeing early rats and these bands were heavy i mean i we hear about the the records out of the cellar i was really kind of disappointed actually when out of the cellar came out because it's like wh where's this band i remember they were a lot heavier when i saw them and they're kind of i don't know you learn to like it though obviously because you know it stands on its own but i there was it was a lot of quick turning points that were happening and because things things were moving rather quickly is there um one show that you got to see at the Troubadour, I mean, obviously, you guys talk about Armored Saint and Rat playing together there mm -hmm. in the documentary, but is, is there one moment that you can pinpoint to being, like, awestruck at something that you got to see at the Troubadour? Yeah, I really liked, uh, I, we were big fans of, uh, of Black and Blue, and, you know, we might probably say, like, Black and Blue, you know, they're... Yeah, their first record was really good. And, yeah, I'd have to say their first record was really good. Um, it definitely didn't capture what I remember about the band. But they seemed to, when they when I first saw them in Los Angeles at the Troubadour, it was January of 1983, um, they were more of like a um, combination sweet, combination cheap trick, combination Saxon, Raven, little pieces, bits and pieces of these elements. And... It was kind of and a Def Leppard thing happening too. So uh, they were doing it loud and kind of bombastic, and they were young, you know. So all of that kind of like, oh, okay, this is they're like us. They're like you know, they're, and they got the Marshalls cranked up, and and uh, they're playing a little heavier music than maybe their commercial output would show. So seeing them, see, I think it was a collective actually. Seeing Wasp for the first time uh, at the Troubadour. Uh, and Blackie lighting the the back backlit sign, which was a trip uh, happening in a club. We didn't think about that possibly this place could burn down, but he just <laughs> did it anyway in this small right. club, you know. So seeing this and his outlandishness at that time, he was like this wicked witch doctor. I, I don't know how to describe it. So when you're a young and impressionable kid, you go, and it's right within ten feet happening in front of you. you, you it it tends to oversaturate the senses <laughs> and it's probably every teenager's dream in terms of what that how you know on how that goes so is there any band that you got to see whether they were featured in the documentary or not or just a band in general that you got to see out in la that you were surprised that didn't make it huge like some of these other bands yeah there's a band i really what happened to me, I think, in 82, 83, I was really going down to the clubs. Um, I think I kind of backed off a little bit by the time 83 closed and 84 started. 
I just saw a lot of the influences outside of what the Hollywood centric vibe was a year earlier. Things had changed a bit, you know, and uh, right. I got a little turned off. So back, I think I started going back in 86 again because bands like Leatherwolf, yeah, they were bringing it, uh, Lizzie Borden, Heretic, uh, they were bringing kind of this heavy thing back. And I'm like, okay, I'm going back. And I remember seeing this band called Snare, and I really dug them. I thought they were great. Um, they were from Detroit originally, and they were fronted by Mike Howe, who is now obviously in Metal Church and was in Metal Church before during the Human Factor and the Elector record that they put out. But uh, he was the front man, and they were they were awesome. Um, they opened for Riot when Riot got back together long after Guy Speranza and Rhett Forrester. I don't know who was fronting them, but that's the reason why we went down to the Troubadour to see Riot. Oh, I love Riot, Fire Down Under. And we thought they were great, but the band before it was Snare, and they just they just tore them apart, actually. They were really good, <laughs> and nobody expected them. They got a great slot, luckily. I don't know how they did it. And that was the first time we saw them, and um, they were great. Their their problem was that they didn't fit with the, the glam thing, and because really things have started to divide at this time. Either you're glam or you're underground or you're you're in that that pocket, and they were not really one or the other. They were their own thing. So I thought they were a really great band. They could have gone somewhere, but it just they they were a victim of timing, really. And a lot of bands kind of fell into that too. That they're just a victim of timing, you know, in terms of. Would they get signed? How important it was to get signed a little earlier and put your record out earlier before everybody else did? Or so because we talk about the PMRC thing too, you know, like okay, well, all these right. bands that were lucky to have the records come out before all that, they got that sticker, and that's what sold the whole thing, you know. And um, parents started to look at these things and get throw their arms up in the air and go, my child's listening to this and that. So, so <laughs> I give you an example of how timing, how important that might be, you know, so, um, snare was a great band and, um, you know, they'll just go into the, into the books. If anybody is able to discover them, you know, it was great to see them back live though. They were really a good band. As far as the inside metal series, how did it all come together? Was it, I mean, obviously, you, Bob, and Joe Floyd are more or less the people named as sort of being the, the catalyst for the whole thing or the foundation for the whole thing. Was it someone's idea to put this together and you were brought into it? Was it your idea? How did everything sort of just come together for the series? Well, I think in life sometimes you kind of go like the obvious things that are under your nose. You don't really realize it. Right. I think it was a case of one of those. It's like, wow, this could, be, you know, looking back, I'm like, wow, this is the most obvious thing. Why didn't we think of it? And I guess it takes certain things to happen. So uh, Bob had his Shockwaves um, uh, podcast that he had been doing, and he had done one on the early eighty, um, early early rock scene with. Uh, a lot of these guys from Orange County, uh, Stephen Quattro's, uh, I think Brian, Stephen Quattro's was in Snow with Carlos Cavazzo and Tony Cavazzo. And then um, he had also on the same show, I think he had Brian O'Brien from A La Carte. So these old, old guys were kind of 
well, I wouldn't say old guys, but that this early scene that was really not known about that was happening in Orange County and Los Angeles at the same time when Quiet Riot's playing the stages and and Van Halen, the early Van Halen days before they got signed. So this particular episode was of interest and it really got a lot of traction for Bob. And in the meantime, Bob, Bob and I were kind of doing this video cast where we would put some interviews with Michael Schenker and Anvil. And so we kind of had the visual thing working for us too and kind of in a simplistic YouTube sense. So we've kind of been doing something. And Bob and at a later podcast had done a, a podcast about producers and Joe Floyd was on the panel with a bunch of other people talking about metal producers, who's the best and who's the worst and what are the best records and blah, blah, blah. So at the end of it, uh, I guess Joe had been working with this executive producer on his projects and had approached Joe about doing a Los Angeles um, scene, um, putting it out in DVD. So I guess he got the light bulb and sounded like, hey, Bob, would you like to do this? Warren Coyle, who I work with, is wanting to do this. You know a lot of people, so this might be a good thing. So that's kind of where it started. You know, the project turned out to be a lot bigger, and it's something that I i guess I needed to come in there and kind of help out and kind of assemble things. And, you know, we were doing it for the first time, so there's a lot of newness happening, a lot of learning curves and a lot of assemblance, I guess, and the whole process. So long story short, we started September 2012, 2012, yeah, and so we're here 2016, October, and we got we got four under our belt, uh, two per episode. Pioneers, it's two parter. The first one and the second one, which has just been released. Uh, the Inside Metal Metal Scene Explodes, eighty two to eighty six in Los Angeles. So that's two parter too. So, uh, I yeah, that's in a small way of saying it. That's how it kind of came together. So, okay, and. Obviously, as you're saying it, it's taken you guys four years basically to put out both volumes uh, because obviously there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes that people don't get to see. And obviously, the interviews that we do get to see, I'm assuming it's probably like 1% of what you guys have shot and mm -hmm. obviously had to edit things down to you know, keep it cohesive and, and make everything make sense. Was it difficult to put barriers on the movies or on the documentaries and say, you know what, we're just going to keep it to this time period. We're only going to use this content. Uh, are there things that you wanted to include but just couldn't include? Mm, no, actually, I think everything is well covered in terms of what was the lineage that you'll see in each movie as far as these little bits and pieces that create an era. I think um, it's pretty well, it's pretty much a history lesson. So I don't think anything's not necessarily left out of it. There would have been some great things if there were video cameras at that time that were taking footage <laughs> that we would have access to. But, you know, there's not a lot of that, you know, I mean, in 1983, nobody had a video camera. And if they did, it was just this huge thing, you know, like a, <laughs> like a broadcast-type camera. So, you know, if it was a perfect world, that would be the, the greatest thing you can have. But we made best 
the best of it because there were photographers that were there. Kevin Estrada, who's really helpful in terms of having these early photos of the club, uh, the bands playing the club scene, and he had some great photos. We were able to utilize so much from him. A lot of people came forward, too, with other photos. that. So we tried to capture as much of that that time period you know we couldn't throw a photo from 1987 in a, in a period where it was just didn't fit when we're talking about 1982 although we did kind of fudge here and there but we try to keep it really of that time because again there was no videotape there was no cameras or video cameras or anything like that just imagine though if there was but <laughs> so we tried just to really create that feeling of being there and just and and trying to tell it properly because it things just get lost in the shuffle and just people just remember certain things and that's all they think they have to remember. But so this really gives an insider, uh, a fan really more of what was really going on. So, uh, so I think we did, we covered about everything we could in this format that is available, that was available to us. So. Yeah, that's an interesting point with the video cameras. That's the the double-edged sword of having the cell phones uh, that you have now and everything being up on YouTube. Mm -hmm. You know, thinking back, as you're saying, could you imagine if we had all that footage, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, would we have had nearly as many concerts if something like YouTube was around back then, you know, to sort of, I don't know, show show you behind the... um, behind the drape of what was going on, you know, you were seeing the wizard much closer up than, mm-hmm. than what we were living back then. Because as, as you're saying with all these different fanzines and magazines and things that came along, or even if there was a concert DVD, there was still an aura mystique mm-hmm. that was around back then mm-hmm. that obviously doesn't exist today. Yeah. You think about it, you know, even the VCR, which really didn't come into vogue until 86, 87. And then the, later 80s when concert videos were maybe you'd be lucky if you had a buddy that actually had i remember i used to go to a friend's house who he had um euro bounds of loudness and mike well this is the only way we can see loudness you know there were no, mtv's <laughs> not playing them and we get to see a whole concert of loudness and akira takasaki and and so we were like always looking for friends who had you know uh, these video obscure things <laughs> but that's how you did it i think the seeking out made it more of a mystique to it really i mean when you yeah. think about it and even the album cover had mystique you know when you had four guys that weren't on the cover of the record you know look at that hypnosis i go back to def leppard again high and dry that hypnosis cover and like these weird old men that are looking up and down in a black and white photo with this guy <laughs> jumping into a pool i mean it it just offers up just kind of something else that is ambiguous and you can't touch it but you want to know more about it and gets you intrigued you know it, with the day and age of youtube now it's the, the intrigueness is kind of gone yeah it's a different intrigueness i guess more about accessibility and content yeah w- without a doubt i mean i th- i honestly think that youtube you know a lot of people point to uh downloading and whatnot but i think youtube has done more to hinder the industry as a whole just because it has sort of taken that mystique away and no no one has no, no one is um uh, like invincible in the sense that 
you can't do a show 100% on your game every single night. And unfortunately, what you know, a lot of these sites run with is you know, the one time when so-and-so is singing you know, while they're sick or while their sound isn't working or, or this or that. So uh, definitely that plays in big time to uh, whether people go out to shows nowadays or not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's some great bands. I mean, you know, they look at Seeger Rose, who, I mean, it's not metal or anything, but, you know, right. they're, they're a band that's just kind of, they're the, the, the artist bands, you know. I mean, I guess going back to Los Angeles, that early time, nobody was really actually copying anybody. Everybody had that first wave. Everybody had something new to bring to the table. Everybody was doing something of their own. And you didn't start to see it until the mid-80s, until the later 80s, where all the bands were doing almost the same thing. And there was no mm -hmm. uniqueness. There was no nothing challenging with it. And you began to wonder, like, well, why do I like music when it's this type of music when everybody sounds the same? So you tended to get bored with it and... You're still looking for something new all the time, though. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's um, that that that's a direct correlation from what Joey Vera mentions in the Pioneers. How MTV really had a big stranglehold on on what took place, and um, all these bands decided, well, I need to do this to get on MTV. So it seemed like everyone wanted to be, you know. Def Leppard, A, B, C, D, E, you know, there was every wave that came along, there was, there was a different Def Leppard, there was a different, you know, Motley Crue, and, and that kept watering down to getting some of the bands in the, in the later 80s that were really fifth, sixth wave in, and they were releasing garbage, and other bands were still copying them because that was what they felt they needed to get on MTV or to get airplay. Well, the funny thing about it is, too, it, you know, probably that latter 80s, it, if that was your exposure to the first time in the L.A. scene, there was still, like, magic. There was still, like, a, a vibe and energy that was really intense still. And you might like these copycat bands. There's probably fans of those copycat bands because this is the first time they're exposed to it. They right. know about the whole rat thing with Jakey Lee in it, and that you know this the real real guys that were doing the real music. Not saying that later guys were not making real music, but so there was still an audience. It was still happening. It just for me, I kind of just dropped out of the whole thing and kind of moved on more after that. So, out of any of the things that were discussed during the the entire series, was there anything that really? caught you off guard i mean we we talked earlier about smiles lead singer saying that uh david lee roth copied him there were always rumors over the years of richard black saying similar things about axel rose for example was there anything specifically that after editing all of this that sort of jumped out at you something that you didn't know of beforehand that really i don't know really shocked you i think a lot of it was um, just um, uncovering a lot. Maybe I, I probably would say I knew a lot of what has been displayed, but actually having it being told, I, it's kind of like you know, you know something about it and you're aware of it, but you just kind of, it's just kind of you don't you don't really put it into play. There was a lot of those moments where like, oh, you start to put it into play because this is 
real kind of a turning point. You know, we talk about Richard Black and the whole, you know, Axl Rose kind of um, borrowing from Richard. And, you know, we knew of it. And we didn't think about it, though. We didn't. If you were a fan, we didn't really like, think about it. But obviously, he thought about it, and the facts were there, kind of, in a sense. But how how the story kind of bowls over, we don't know about. We don't know about that effect. Only Richard Black, guys in Shark Island, would probably know. Why that was, and so for us to kind of put it out there, I think it's important. But you know, we also wanted to give it a more of a balanced thing too. You know, and Axel talking about what it's like to be original and what it takes to really harness that. And the '70s really—you don't get to see how much of an effect the '70s still played a role on these bands that were making music in the '80s. It's incredible to think about it because it's really true. You know. We go into talking with um, um, the guitarist from Nazareth, from the 70s band, you know, uh, and he was called upon to work on those first uh, Guns N' Roses demos, and he was con- perhaps going to be the producer. He was, because Axel was into this 70s vibe, and, you know, I'm sure the whole Nazareth thing kind of fits Axel's influences. So we talk about that too, you know. So, Drawing from influences, Richard was doing the same thing too, you know, whether it be Michael Jackson or Robert Plant. It's it's that real 70s thing that people really took and made it um, in this 80s mold in their original originality of, of what they were trying to do, you know. So uh, just to give an example. So I think it's the, the facts were kind of out there. We just kind of made sure that we kind of left it up to the audience to really kind of make up their mind about it and it it helped me to kind of process things because every step of the way things are changing things are moving forward bands are that were getting signed were moving on and going to the big leagues and playing the big places and then there's the new guard that moves in that takes their place and does something different and you know Guns N' Roses was kind of the last stamp as far as I'm I'm concerned about Los Angeles and and being a global um, nurturing place for these bands. Was there one thing that either one of these uh, documentaries really fulfilling to you? Was there a certain thing after seeing them put together, or, or maybe the work was sort of done on them and you were relieved? <laughs> uh, but is there one thing that you can look back at and say, "Wow, you know, I'm really proud of what we did with this aspect of either one of the documentaries." Well, the first one, I wasn't there, but these guys told enough of the story to where I was aware of a lot of it, so they filled in a lot of gaps, you know, and then right. it was able to be told much better because we just pieced it together. So, But the, the Metal Scene Explodes, the 82 to 86, that's the one that Bob and I lived. We were there. We know we we experienced it. We had feelings about it. So the thing I would say to walk away from it is knowing that being there and actually putting something out to carry it forward to people that were maybe there again, or to bring them back, or people that never were there but heard about it or are interested in it. I'm proud that we can actually show something that is 
historically significant and properly told. So we achieved that goal in the sense that we did it. So um, is it of the standard in terms of um, uh, broadcastability or being on um, in in the movie theater? It's a different format. It's really for the fans, and but I think it that's what it boils down to: the fans. The fans are the ones that have the last word in it. So. So speaking us as us with fans and speaking to the fans about what that was about was really important for us, and, if, and we achieved that. We definitely did. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's a, a great point for me. I mean, talking to Bob over the years, there were bands that he brought up, like Snow or like Alucard or things like that, and that I'd never heard of as a kid, you know, because obviously being on the East Coast mm-hmm. – uh, that that was something that was much more centric to what you guys had out there in California. So it was definitely, I mean, the Pioneers was was a huge history lesson for me. And, and as a music as a music nerd that I am, it, it was something that I just absolutely loved. I actually saw it when I received the the LA music or the LA scene explodes. I actually went back and revisited the um, Pioneers because. I enjoyed the second half so much I needed to revisit that first part. So definitely from anyone that is even remotely a music fan or someone that loves watching documentaries, I mean, it, it's definitely well worth your while to check out. And I think you hit the nail on the head there where I think people judge success in different ways. And you don't always have to have a, you know, a Hollywood blockbuster to measure something as being a success, just doing something for the fans and knowing your audience and knowing what you're going for, I think is just as equally as important. Yeah, so I'm I'm glad you kind of see see the scope, you know, because you never know when you're doing it and what your your goals are right. that it actually transfers out, and that's the goal, really. <laughs> what was the biggest obstacle, in your opinion, to putting everything together? Uh, well, one of them was we were new to this. Um, we, at least from my perspective, we knew only enough to get by each day. And then as the momentum kind of kicked in more and more, uh, I started to realize this is a lot of material. This is really more material actually when you start working with. It's one thing actually doing it Mm -hmm. and know you've done it. Actually, okay, time comes, you got to work with it all now. And that was a huge, huge, huge job. So, um, yeah, well, <laughs> it's a lot of material. I guess we probably did about maybe 60 to 80 interviews, nah, somewhere in that ballpark, I guess. And imagine a half hour to an hour each of each. You can add it up and know that there's a lot of material there. Yeah. But yeah. it's rich material. Also, too, um, I think the approach – it's a good and a bad thing. The approach was give them a question, let them fly with it. Well, we did that with everybody. And just imagine how much of that. You get the best parts, obviously, but sure. there's so much of the best parts. So now what do you do to put the best parts in and leave the well, the other parts out? It was really tough in that respect. You couldn't add everything. but yeah. So that's where it came into, okay, one person says one part of the story, and then we have another part of another person. So we did a lot of a little bit of that, you know, and that kind of added to the the story because you had different people talking about one subject. And so we tried to play with that. So we learned 
so much. So it's um, it was uh, it was daunting though. But I'm glad we got it out because that we couldn't see ourselves throwing in the towel at that point. A lot of people do throw in the towel because they realize they got just it's 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 more work. That's that's it's it's a lot of work doing the filming, but it's really the work comes in the editing and and the whole placing everything where it needs to go properly and it's it's a lot of work so i don't know did i answer your answer your question no absolutely (laughs) and and i can appreciate that because definitely with podcasting the hardest part is editing everything and making it cohesive and making sure that everything sounds good so i can definitely appreciate that as far as getting people to tell different sides of the story with the la scene explodes did Gina Zamparelli, tell us the uh, the real story of what happened between Dave Mustaine and um, and Phil Sandoval. Um, the the rumored story that was floating around for years that uh, even uh, well Dave mentions in some kind of monster and again in his book. And uh, when I interviewed John Bush a few years back, I asked him about it, and he said, you know, that's an interesting take on what happened but it isn't how i recall you know what happened and gina told the story completely different so it was uh it was an i know that was an eye opener to me ah did we finally find out what actually happened between dave mustaine and the guys from armored saint on that specific night yeah i think it's uh 30 years on it's just folklore you know <laughs> We can only kind of touch on the people who actually are recalling a story that was significant, yet kind of as time goes on, it's just uh, folklore, you know? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, uh, he he definitely broke his foot, that's for sure. We know that, you know, just (laughs) how and why. And we tried to tell it as best as we could, you know, and Ace of Spades came on, these after parties after the Troubadour show, 1982, and Metallica was still a Los Angeles band, you know. All makes sense, you know. It's a lot of, you know, a lot going on at that time, so. Yeah. Whether it was done out of uh, just pure uh, teenage rebelliousness of one band in competition with another, or if it was just kind of an accident that just kind of was embellished as a kind of a, us against these two big bands going at it, the key members, or, or you know, or Dave Mustaine's kind of uh, ad alcohol, watch him go type. <laughs> man, man that he was at that time. I mean, it's probably a little bit of everything, right? You know? Yeah, and and as you're saying, I mean, it's it's folklore. So depending on whether you were there or not, you know, the the story's gonna build and take a life on of its own, definitely. And if you get certain things involved, alcohol or other substances, then maybe your recollection of what took place may not be. The same as other people that maybe were a little bit more on level that evening. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, oh, I'm glad there's some there's, there's those stories because they're actually very important because the, these these are all kind of components to uh, what drove um, bands forward and what what was actually happening at that time. You yep. know, dogpiling. I mean. <laughs> I don't know. I guess dudes in the in the valley and in that in, in San Gabriel Valley, it was kind of a dude thing to do. I guess. <laughs> so 
Yep. It all kind of plays at that time, you know. Maybe it wouldn't happen in 1988, you know. But in 82, 83, it was maybe happening. Another thing you touched upon was that you guys are fairly new to this process, or at least you were when you started out with these series. Maybe mm-hmm. that worked in in your benefit for these uh, movies, just because you see a lot of veteran filmmakers that are making these documentaries and have feel the need to have to include themselves to interject in every one of these documentaries to make themselves almost feel part of the story or make themselves feel as important as the story. And that's something that you guys did not do at all. You guys let these people tell their stories and let the stories be the focal point of the entire series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it um maybe it was more out of necessity uh but more out of yeah, exactly. You got to let them tell the story because they were there. We're we're just it, it's kind of like everything the movie was practically already made. Right. We we right. just pieced it together. So for us to interject it would get in the way, you know, and um glad we didn't, you know. And the narration that was there on the first one that Bob did tells the story perfectly and it it kind of intertwines between these interviews and what John Bush did uh from Armored Saint doing the narration on the second one. I mean, he was a linchpin um at at that moment, you know, maybe 2 years or 3 years earlier, Nikki Six was a linchpin. Uh John Bush, he was in the epicenter of he was in the eye of the storm um in terms of the bands that were hot at that time and they were one of them. So you get that first-hand impression of pers- of of that person being there. Um, all it does is add to it. It doesn't take away from it. And it doesn't stand in the way of what what's really going on and telling the story. So, um, yeah, we didn't want any of that. Um, and it made it more keeping it on a pure level. So that was important to us. Okay. And you guys are working on the third installment, which is based on the thrash scene. Um, how far along are you guys, uh, with this part of the series and do you have any type of ETA as to when you think it'll be released? 2017, don't know when, um, I'm doing the final prep edit, uh, there's been a little couple revisions that has, have been happening and we got a, like a last minute interview that kind of came through. It's a good one. I can't tell you who it is, but <laughs> okay. you 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 would know the name. Well, of course you would know the name, of course. Uh, but somebody that's really important to that underground um, uh, thrash metal scene, you know. Uh, so yeah, I think with that one, um, there's a lot to be told. This underground scene probably has a little bit more mystique going on for it. We kind of established in episode two this current one that's out the metal scene explodes like the divisions and how they started to set themselves up um and you know the 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 glam thing has been told before so this is the only obvious step for us to kind of go behind the curtain of the whole thrash thing in los angeles and you know we've heard it time and time again san francisco just took the baton and ran with it and they get a lot of the credit, um, but Los Angeles was really 
really doing it. The San Francisco bands would come down in down to Los Angeles and play the Olympic Auditorium, the Balboa Theater, these places that were kind of in these dark, seedy parts and dangerous parts of Los Angeles. So it wasn't a case of uh, glam metal was what we were about. It was really, it was really these places and bands coming into town uh, from San Francisco and the Los Angeles bands that were holding it down, Dark Angel and Hyrax and Vermin Slayer, early phases of Megadeth um, starting here, you know, and of course the Metallica thing and their Orange County. So, and then we get into the, you know, Rocky George talking about the whole suicidal thing, which is another thing all unto its own, the whole crossover thing and when punk faded out and the, the bands like suicidal really took the baton of um the whole crossover thing so um it needs to be told in, in another way too you know so we're gonna do it with this one and um see how it comes out um got a lot of good people in it we got stephen craig who's never really talked formally the first original slayer manager and we learned a lot from him um, describing how the whole Slayer thing was kind of forged. He was really the fifth member of Slayer. I mean, with the ideas and the concepts and the artwork, and you know, him and Carrie were kind of really a formidable, formidable force in that band and in the, in the vision of where it was going. And it's amazing to see these early visions that how they started out that are still part of the whole mystique of Slayer to this day, so that were established back in 82, 83, so some great little nuggets to be kind of hear about in the story um, when it comes out in 2017. <laughs> cool. Um, could you imagine doing anything else beyond this with the Inside Metal series? Um, I committed to j these three, and I think early on I, I didn't know what or how things would progress and um i don't know for me it's like a big marathon i've just ran and <laughs> i'm a little bit tired now i kind of want to like take a little bit of break because you know metal's my kind of like my first love i love music i love a lot of other things and you know so if, if this is the series continues on which it is i know bob's doing a san francisco one two of the underground uh thrash metal scene um you know, doing it in the inside metal format, which would be really cool too. Um, you know, so uh, I, wherever wherever he's going to take it, you know, then I'm sure he's going to be the, the 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 face of, the face of it. And then we'll you know we'll see project by project after that. But uh, right now I'm, I'm taking a rest. I haven't made any commitments to anything else after this third episode of Inside Metal. The the underground uh, thrash metal scene uh, one is finished. So, okay, but I'll be doing something. I don't know what it will be, but it will be something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, cool. Um, where should people go to find out more about the Inside Metal series? Well, we got our Facebook page. You can go there. That's pretty much the hub of a lot of what's going on. Although it usually revolves around just posting pictures of the errors that we cover, and you know, just kind of having content kind of come up and but there's always new announcements being added once you know once this third one comes out we're going to definitely have an announcement that it will be available to amazon and amazon prime and google play and itunes and you'll hear about it there um we have a twitter page we have a 
uh, Instagram. Um, so yeah, that's um, depending on where this podcast goes. We also have a video on demand of episode two that's going to be running in November. So check out your outlets, your Verizon's, and your Cox Cable. They'll be running it to where you can see it on demand too, as well. And um, it might be on uh, one of the cable channels here in America. Access TV, I think, is going to run the Pioneers at some stage if they haven't already. Mm-hmm. So there's opportunities to see it everywhere. You know, obviously, when we started out, we were just thinking DVD, and it's really kind of structured for like a DVD release and probably go to your favorite metal store your mom and pop that if they don't have it they should carry it and if they do carry it it probably sells pretty well we've gotten really good feedback from the mom and pop stores metal stores and uh uh, indie stores that have been selling it pretty good so yeah there's many ways to kind of be able to see it but uh yeah so that's the best way to uh, keep up and hear about new things and know where it exists and where you can see it very cool I definitely appreciate you coming on and talking about um, the entire Inside Metal series. Like I said, uh, during the interview, I've absolutely loved it so far and look forward to the third installment. Very good. Thank you very much, Victor. And this is Carl Alvarez, producer of Inside Metal, talking with Victor. And we appreciate the time you've taken with us so we can tell a little bit more about what we've been up to and just the whole composite of everything that uh, we've been doing on Inside Metal.
little docking coming off of back for the attack. That is the prisoner. That was my very first CD that I ever owned. And I remember it to this day. There was a store in East Hanover, New Jersey called Tops. And they had a CD player for $89, a Sanyo. And I begged and I begged and I begged. And, and finally, uh, I don't remember if it was for my birthday or whatever. No, yeah, it was for my birthday because I subsequently got a few more CDs a few weeks later. And I saw $89.99. They were around 120 130 at the time. And I said, please, can you get this for me? You know, I begged my parents. Finally, my mother took me to get it. And then on the way home, can we stop at Kmart? Because they have... You know, CDs on sale. I saw back for the attack and like the cutout section for those that remember what the cutout CDs and cassettes were all about. Saw it for $7.99. My mother was like, what? We bought you this and now you, you want... Yes, I want something to listen, uh, listen to it on it. Damn it. I, I want a CD to listen to. And I will, I will never forget. First three CDs was... Dawkins back for the attack. Uh, my cousin bought me for my birthday Queen's Greatest Hits, the first one. It was a UK uh, import, and it cost like almost 30 bucks at the time, and there was an import place close to us that had it. And CD number three, Queensryche, Operation Mindcrime. Still love all three of those CDs. Well, I've, well, I have to admit that one in three I play Still, from time to time, the Queen's Greatest Hits. Queen is somebody that I really, really loved way back when, and I'm sort of burnt out on them now. And especially that anywhere you go here in Spain, they're, they're, they, they play a lot of Queen. So, yeah. Uh, anyway, I want to thank Carl for coming on. I want to thank Bob Nalbandian for helping all this happen. And at the same time, I want to recommend you guys, if, you're, if you aren't sure... With regards to what you want to purchase someone for Christmas, this is definitely, or whatever you celebrate around the holiday season, this is something that I would highly recommend. I really love this Inside Metal series, and I'm not just saying this because, you know, they're they're friends of the show. It really is, being the music nerd that I am, I'll take this over a lot of other documentaries that are out there that... A lot of them are staged. This isn't. This is letting, you know, the musicians tell their stories, and I think it's great. So there you go. Uh, We're going to end things with one more L.A.-based band here, or or at least one that uh, appeared in in the documentary. And this is going back to probably my favorite release by the band, and the band is Great White. I know that, you know, all these years later, after the station fire and everything else, people's opinions changed. And and some people have been like, they're not sure whether they should um, poo-poo the band or not, in the sense that, uh, you know, because of what happened, people have become standoffish, you know, or, or it's not politically correct to like them or, or whatever. Which I mean I don't know. It's not like it's not like Adolf Hitler put out some music here, you know. Um, what happened is terrible. I I can't. There's no way that I can sugarcoat that at all. But um, this is still some great music, 
And I know the band have tried to sort of make amends over the years, especially Jack Russell, who's basically the one in the crossfires for all of this. And this is the the original lineup, also a Wasp tie-in here. But uh, let's get into the track, the the title track, I should say. This is Stick It, coming off of the Stick It album by Great White. Thank you to everyone for listening to this show. Hopefully you come back for episode 142. Hopefully you check out the social media stuff. And hopefully you tell all your friends about us there. And we leave you with Great White. See ya.
Thank you for listening to the Mars Attacks podcast. This concludes our show. 